All right. Well, thank you, Stephen, for the introduction. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, one quick note before we jump into our scripture today, which will be Psalm 81. You may hear a, a cough or a sniffle from me today. It is just allergies. Trust me. Um, nothing you can catch. So don't go to the bathroom in, in the middle of the service and slip out the door. Um, no worries. You're, you, everybody's all good. Um, today, we will be in Psalms 81. Psalm 81. So if you want to jump there real quick, we will read it together and then we will dive in. Psalm 81. For the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of Asaph. Sing for joy to the God of our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. I heard a language that I did not know. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. So as we begin to think about this particular psalm, the first thing that we have to understand is that first and foremost, this is a call to worship for the community of Israel, but it's a call to worship within this specific context of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, or in your Bibles it might say the Feast of Booze, you could even translate it the Feast of Dwelling Places. And we know that because when he's calling them to blow the trumpet at the new moon and at the full moon on their feast day, uh, we know from that, according with the Jewish calendar, that this is that feast. We see Jesus himself going to that feast, and we'll get there in John 7 a little later on. But this is a specific call to praise in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, right, it's a, it's a feast for the children of Israel to remember God taking them out of the land of Egypt, that, where they went out across the Red Sea into the desert place. They dwelled in tents as God was taking them forward to the promised land. 
And the first thing we see in this in verses 1 through 5 is that call to praise, right? Now, we might be tempted to, to skip over this part, right? Because it's just talking about singing for joy, shouting joyfully. And while this is in the context of a specific feast, it is a call to worship. And so it is more than just a call to worship, but it's not less than a call to worship. So what, what can we gain, right? What can we learn from this call to praise, right? I think when we read this, we have to begin to think, right, about how we worship God as well. Because each and every week we are called to come worship corporately together. We are called to come and remember what God has done. His salvation message in each and every one of our lives, just like they are called to remember. In praise, right, we have an outward sign, we show an outward sign of God's action in our lives. That's what he is calling them to do. An outward sign uh, of God's action in their lives, what God has done for them. Now, as I was reading over this, I, I was also dabbling a little bit in C.S. Lewis's reflections on the Psalms. And he references this particular psalm in, in talking about praise and worship, right? Um, and as you know, if you've read any C.S. Lewis, he can be very snide at some points. And in this point, he particularly was, right? And what, who he was snide to was the English gentleman, right? That, that was called uh, to, to, be, to do all the right things, but to do it with no emotion whatsoever, to do all the right things with no emotion at all, right? And that's who he was kind of digging at in his reflections on the Psalms. How do we need to think about our own worship? How do we need to think about our outward action? I would think the, the Bible says, if, if I look at all of Scripture, it would lean itself to tell us that our, our heart, what's in our heart, is much more important than what we do outwardly. But I, I want to give you guys a little warning. Don't let your outward stoicism affect what's going on in here. Because if we're stoic on the outside, that, that's one thing. That's okay. I, I'm the chief culprit of that. If we're stoic on the outside, that's one thing. But if our hearts are cold to the gospel during worship, if our, if our hearts aren't singing for joy, if we're not raising a song, if it's not important to us, if it doesn't affect us, if it doesn't do something in our heart, then there's a problem. And vice versa, if we are so, right, we are so outwardly focused and so euphoric in our praise, we can also forget to think about Jesus as well, right? We have some people that lean toward that also. Becoming so euphoric, we forget all about why we're there and what we're singing. This also, right, this also is important. We begin to think about what we are saying when we praise, right? we're asked to sing for joy to the God of our strength, to shout joyfully to the God of Jacob, to do all these things because God, right, has set up his salvation plan in the life of Israel, right? 
And I won't harp on this very much. But I do want to say this. If your praise and worship music, if in your praise and worship music, Jesus is the runner-up in your victory race, then we have a problem. We have an issue. And there's a lot of praise and worship music that does exactly that. Where we are the victors and Jesus is, is somewhere back here, right? He's the afterthought of our victory in our day. Let it not be so. But let Christ be the center of our worship. So after our call to praise here, right, in 5b through 7, through verse 7, we see the writer say this. I heard a language I did not know. <coughs> I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. So what's he encouraging them to do? First of all, we hear this language that I did not know. And this is when it's switching over to God's voice, right? God speaking. And I think the idea here is that we're supposed to see God as other, as transcendent, right? Uh, that's what he means by, I heard a language I did not know. And so we obviously see here that it's turning to God speaking directly to his people. And he's reminding them what he did. That he relieved their shoulders of the burden, that their hands were freed from the basket. They were in trouble. They were in slavery in the land of Egypt. And God answered, right? He rescued them from their trouble. He not only rescued them from their trouble in a mighty way, right? But it also says here at the end of verse 7 that he proved them at the waters of Meribah. And if you know what that's talking about, what that's talking about was when the children of Israel went into the desert, right? They come to this place called Meribah, right? And Meribah had water, but the water wasn't good to drink at all, right? It would have killed them, right? It was sour is what I remember the... Bible saying, sour water. And so we see God not only showing his, his mighty power, his mighty nature through his salvific acts, through parting the Red Sea, freeing them from Egypt, right? Bringing them out of the hands of Pharaoh, but he also proves them through trial. Through trial at Meribah. And ultimately, we know that he tells Moses, right, to strike the rock, right? And when he strikes the rock with his staff, fresh water comes out. This is a call to remember God's mighty deeds. Now, you, you may or may not know, right, what, I, what I'm talking about when I say this, but the church I grew up in when I was a kid, it was built somewhere in the the 50s or 60s, and down in front of the pulpit area, there was this massive table. I mean, it was just gigantic. You, you'd had to have like four or five people to move the thing that big. And on the front of it, and this is burned into my mind, I can picture it right now because I saw it every single week, it says, this do in remembrance of me, right? And that's where they would set the, the communion. 
why not? But what, why is that important, right? Why is that important? Because it was telling us, right, when we walked into church, as a reminder, that we were there to remember God's salvation in the context of our corporate worship. We were there to remember that in the context of our corporate worship. And so every time, right, every time we gather in church together, right, every time we gather in church together, this is not just something that we do just because we need to do it. This is not just a place where we come to see our friends, our community. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a place we come to remember God's salvific acts in our life each and every time. Why is it so important to remember? I think it's important to remember because of the fickle nature of memory. You see, they're called to, to this, do this feast every year, right? Because God wants them to remember. God wants them to understand. God wants them to have it on the forefront of their mind, his work in their lives. And it's similar to us as well. But memory is very fickle, right? You guys, you guys know this, right? You can, you can, be, you can stand in here uh, or come in here on a Sunday. You can have something uh, really impressed upon your heart, something that you need to work on in your own life, some sin you need to get rid of. And then you can walk out of here on Sunday, and by the time the football game's over, that's gone, right? You've forgotten all about it. It's easy enough. When I think of, when I think of memory, when I think of memory, and this is going to tie back into our music as well. If you guys don't know, uh, my, my other job is, is work as a hospice chaplain, and I, I once had a a resident of mine that I'll never forget. He literally, I I could walk into the room, introduce myself. I could walk out, count to 10, come back in, and have to introduce myself again. That is how far advanced, right, his dementia was. It's a terrible disease, it really is. He didn't remember anything. But we could start singing a hymn or praying and he remembered the hymn he could sing every word that's how our memory works our our music and our our prayer right it's stuck in there even till the last the last moments he didn't remember that he loved his wife he didn't even remember he had a wife but he remembered jesus He remembered he loved Jesus. And that's because, right, God has, I think in his sovereignty, has has made it so that some of the things that we hold on to the most, right, is the music we listen to and the prayers we pray. That goes back to my other point. The music we listen to needs to be important because, unfortunately, we may find ourselves in a similar place one day. We don't know, 
what's going to happen to us. And so it's so important that our minds and our hearts from, from the earliest age are set are, are set with knowing God, right? This, apply, this applies to what you do with your family, with your children. Because we need to have it in our hearts from the earliest ages so we remember. That's one of the reasons they had this feast in the first place. So from their earliest days, there were things set that they would remember as a people and as a group. And I want to tell you this if you have little kids at home, and this is the only time during the week that they hear about Jesus, we're doing them a disservice. We're doing them a great disservice. We turn now, right? Let's move on. 8 through 10. What does God say? He calls to them. He says, hear my people, I will admonish you. O Israel, if you listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is God calling them Back to obedience. And if you know anything about Israel, this is what they always did, right? They would always follow after God for a while. And then they would divert. They would worship some other God. And then things didn't work out so well with that other God. They were defeated by an enemy. And then they'd be like, oh man, we need to turn back to God now. He's the only one that can save us. And so they would uh, repent and they would cry and God would come in and he would save them. And then it would happen all over again. If if you want to hear more about that, just read the book of Judges. That's the entire book, right? So he's calling them to obedience, right? To obey God over everything else, right? He's questioning them, asking them to remember, right? Who fills them, right? Who takes care of them? Because see, here's their problem. And I think uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would call this a disordered passion. He has a lot of different types of sin he talks about, but I think he would call this a disordered passion. And his example of this is Peter's denial, Thomas Aquinas is Peter's denial, right? Where Peter goes and he denies Jesus three times. And then the second the rooster crows, right? He, he runs outside and he falls down and he cries and he repents, right? It's because he's so scared of being taken like Jesus was, right? Being killed as Jesus was about to be, that he denies Christ. And so, what Thomas Aquinas is saying is like their heart is in the wrong place, right? He's more focused on something he he's focused on something he shouldn't be focused on, right? The the thoughts and intents and the desire of his heart is off, right? It's a disordered passion. And I, I think this is what Israel would keep going through all the time, right? They would always find something that moved them. Away, right, from worshiping God. There would always be a reason why they ran off and worshiped the foreign God. It could be the same with us, right? 
we can fall in, into the same struggle, right? The same trap. We have to, right, take this admonishment to root out sin in our lives. It's very important that we recognize as well that I, I believe that this particular part of the passage, right, is also rooted in, in the doctrine or our doctrine of God as Father, right? God talks about opening your mouth wide and I will fill it, right? He talks about his care and concern for his people to provide for them, to be the center of their existence, Right? And our doctrine of God as Father is extremely important when we talk about why we obey, right? Why we obey, why we are to obey. Because the reality is, right, there have been a there's a lot of idols out there, a lot of other religions out there. The reasons that they obey, right? The reasons that they follow their teaching are, are much different than this reason. Right? If you look at something like Islam, for example, you're obeying just to try to avoid eternal punishment, simply. Simply put. If you're a Hindu, for example, right, you're, you're trying to do the right things Right? So that eventually, over the course of many, many reincarnations, maybe you will be able to basically, in essence, kind of dissolve into the spiritual force that is in everything. But in Christianity, right, God is Father, right? He's Creator. That changes how we look at obedience, right? We obey because we should want to obey, right? We obey because we have a God that, that truly cares for us and wants to provide for us, wants to have us act like Him because we are His children, because we are His creation. If you have kids or have kids, you know, or have had kids, you know that you want them to follow your directions, right? Because you, you want them ultimately to be well put together members of society like you are, right? You, you don't let them run completely wild because you want them to have a, a productive and put together life, right? You want them to look like you. You want them to act like you. Same with God as creator, right? He wants us to look like him. He wants to act, us to act like him. And we have a duty to do so because he's the one that created us. He's the one that put us here. And we should have a, a deep desire, longing desire to do so as well. As we turn to 11 through 16 here, the end of the psalm, we kind of see this choice of two roads, right? Of two paths. 
He goes on to say, my, my people didn't listen to me, right? Israel did not obey. So what did God do? He gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. And if that sounds familiar to you, you may have read Romans 1 recently. What does God talk about, right, in Romans 1? He talks about giving people over, right, to their own devices. He talks about because people were stubborn, because people can walk outside, know that, that a God exists, don't even have to have this Bible. They can walk outside and know that a God exists, but they still refuse to, to obey him and follow him. That God's given people over to their most base passions. To walk in their own devices. God calls out, he says, oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel walk in my ways. And he says, look, I'll quickly subdue their enemies. Turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. Their time of punishment would be forever. He says, but I would feed you with the finest of wheat. With the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And so we see the flourishing of God's way and God's path here, but we also see the destruction, right, of not following God. And this is the reality of Scripture, right? And Scripture is very clear, right? That if we do not believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we will die and go to hell. We will die and we will be in eternal punishment forever and ever. On the other side of that, we recognize, that God's path, right, is one to absolute flourishing, right? That God's path, right, is the one, the one way in this life that we can have a productive and fruitful existence. Two different paths with two very different outcomes, those of you in this room that, that are believers, right, you, you know, right, that God's path is a path to flourishing. You've experienced some of that. Those of you that are not, I, I encourage you, right, to, to look at God's word, to, to recognize and realize that Jesus is the path to life and righteousness. And for Christians in this room, Here's the other thing. If we say that God's way is the path to flourishing, then we better show it. We better show it. We don't always do a great job at that. One thing that, one thing that I have, have seen, right, is typically if there is telling and doing those of us that tend to lean more conservative and more evangelical, we tend to lean also toward the telling and not necessarily the doing. And we as believers have to do the doing. The least of these, that caring for the orphan and for the widow, providing for those in need. If we're saying that God's path is the path to human flourishing, then we need to be actually doing some physical stuff. That is very important. 
right? In, in displaying to people that this gospel is real, that it means something. It means something not only for the future, right? Not only for the afterlife, not only for going to heaven, but it means something here and now. It affects your life here and now. And, and so we need to be cognizant of that. When we begin to think of, of these two paths, right? This brings me to John chapter 7. And, and I want to turn there for just a minute. In John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers are going to the Feast of Tabernacles, right? They're going to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're like, hey, Jesus... They don't believe that he is who he says he is, right? But, but they're like, you know, hey, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go up to the feast and you can tell everybody, right? And that's what they want him to do. But Jesus says, no, thanks. And, and they go ahead without him, right? And, and Jesus decides to later go to the feast himself. And when he gets to the feast, right, on the last day, the great day of the feast, we're, we're remembering God's atonement for his people, when we're remembering God's salvation of his people. He stands up and he says this in verse 37. Now, on the last, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of of living water. Now this is extremely important in the context of the feast, right? Because remember what we said. The proving at the waters of Meribah, right? We see Moses strike the rock, right? And life-giving water flows out. Now, they wouldn't have been blind to this. Right? So when Jesus says this, he's saying something pretty important. He's saying, look, if anybody's in need of anything, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is our, our salvation message here, right, in the psalm. Is that in Christ we come to him for our water, for what we so desperately need. It says, from our innermost being will flow rivers, rivers of living water. It's pretty amazing. Pretty profound. And Jesus would say something like this. And I want you guys to recognize in the context of this psalm, we have a, a choice, a clear, clear choice, right? To either follow Jesus or not. It's, it's, sim it's that simple, right? To believe in Jesus or not. We, if the Holy Spirit impresses upon you today that you are in need of a Savior, 
my encouragement to you as we close, right, as we sing this song, is to find somebody, right? Find somebody. Talk to them. Place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. And know, right, know that this is the path to flourishing. And that there are no other options. This is it, right? Do or don't do. Believe or don't believe. Praise God for his goodness. Praise God for him giving us an opportunity to gather in corporate worship and remember today. Praise God and shout for joy that we woke up this morning and that we got to come here and praise Jesus. And let us never take for granted what we do here every Sunday. Let's never take that for granted. Because it is a beautiful thing that displays the salvation message of Jesus Christ each and every week. Praise God for that. Let us pray. Our humble and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And even in, in the midst of our sin, while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. We pray, Lord, that as we begin to think about these things, number one, Lord, that if we are believers, that we would not take salvation message for granted, but that we would live by it each and every day. And Lord, we pray for the hearts and the minds of anyone in here that doesn't know Jesus. Lord, we pray God's impressing it on their heart this morning, that they would find one of their elders, that they would find their, their Sunday school teacher, that, Lord, they would find somebody so that we can praise with them God's work in their lives. Lord, we give you all the honor and the praise and the glory. Because, Lord, it's nothing that we do. But, Lord, it's, it's you. Lord, we pray you remember these things. In Jesus' name, amen.